friend, and welcome to the U-Turn Podcast. This is your host, Ashley Stahl. I'm a career expert, a speaker, and the best-selling author of the book, U-Turn. Get unstuck, discover your direction, design your dream career. I wrote the U-Turn book and created this podcast to help you reconnect to who you truly are at your core. And that's why every single week I bring a guest on with the intention of helping you upgrade your confidence in work and in love. I'm also so excited to say that this episode has been sponsored in part by our friends over at Soul CBD. I'm so careful about putting things into my body these days, and this is the only CBD company I've come to trust with my wellness. They are organically farmed, gluten-free, and have absolutely zero THC in their products. It's just a clean CBD to help you ditch your stress, sleep better, and soothe anxiety. My absolute favorite product of theirs is the orange cream gummies. They also have raspberry and strawberry, which are really good. And after about two weeks of having one gummy every single evening with CBD in it to treat my little sweet tooth with a dessert, I can't help but notice that my sleep has drastically improved every single night. I actually wear a ring to measure my sleep and it's just undeniable what these little gummy friends have done for me. And without THC, you're just getting the calming effects of the CBD plant, none of the high, which is why they are so safe to take. They each come in 10 milligrams or 25 milligram doses of CBD to calm you down from the day in the sweetest and tastiest of ways. And the best thing about them is that they don't taste at all like CBD. I once tried another CBD gummy bear from another company and it was like, whoa, it tasted like I was eating a skunk wrapped in marijuana and sugar. So anyway... I've come to love these little gummies from Soul CBD, and as a way to love myself, to use whatever resources exist in the world that help me be more well as a human, these are so one of them. So our friends at Soul CBD have given us a discount code for 15% off your order. Just head on over to ashleystahl.com slash soul. It's A-S-H-L-E-Y-S-T-A-H-L dot com slash S-O-U-L to access our special page with them. And don't forget to use the U-Turn code at checkout. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N at checkout. Now let's get in to this week's episode. There are big forces that are motivated to us being afraid of death. And I do think that if we loosened our grip on that, our lives would become just bigger and more exceptional. Hey, U-Turners, it's Ash here, and I have got quite the gift for you today, and it's Kelsey Chittick. She is not only a writer and a comedian, but she's also the co-host of the Keep On podcast. She's a mom of two, and fortunately and unfortunately, she's an expert on death and loss, and I know a lot of you, if you're anything like me, um, you feel a huge fear of loss. Um, There's a lot of ways that our fear of loss can be triggered, and sometimes we don't even notice we're having it. And so I figured we could go through um, four steps from Kelsey on how to overcome that fear of loss that you can really set yourself free and just get more leverage in your life. Um, Kelsey, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I, um, Kelsey and I met at a a party, and um, what I will say when I was talking to you is like, there's a comfort that comes with someone who isn't afraid of loss. 
you know, um, you seem to have like a freedom in your life that not everybody has. And it gets me really curious to just ask you your story. Like what got you so comfortable and at peace with the concept of loss? Yeah. And, um, and I just want to make sure that it's, it's a work in progress because just like everyone else, if I let my mind go too far or too long down a track that doesn't serve me, I can end up afraid again, but I think I've learned some ways to counteract what I think is a, is a natural human tendency to be afraid of loss, whether for it be for us or for our loved ones, because it keeps us safe. But so much of what we worry about and so much of what we project doesn't need to get in the way of our joy. But we're also afraid of it because we we just we don't understand it and we don't know and that makes us really nervous. And before I tell the story of uh, losing my husband, I'll just let you know that prior to his death, I was more afraid of death than anybody I know. Wow. Um, you know, because I, I think it's death is a control issue. At least it was for me. Yeah. Uh, it's the one thing you can't control. So when you're uptight, you have OCD, you're neurotic, anxious. Those are all things. Um, that I was a lot of my life. And I think many times type A women are are successful in a lot of areas of their life. But at night, in the dark of the night, we have so much stress and so much anxiety because we do know there's some things we can't control. And especially for me, um, my children and my husband were everything to me. So I was very aware that I didn't want anything to happen to them. Mm-hmm. Um, it was my big fear. And a Basically, what happened about three years before I lost my husband, um, my anxiety was at an all-time high. I was just, I was sick and I traveled a lot for work. And every time I'd go away, I just had this nagging feeling that something bad was going to happen. And I don't say that to scare people because I think every mother, when they leave their children, you know, biologically, we do crave them and we we want to be with them. That's that's what keeps kids alive. But mine was almost um, debilitating. I had this deep feeling that something was going to happen when I was on a trip. And so I would push through it, but the nights were always hard when I was in the hotel and I would tell my husband like, God, this, I just can't do this anymore. And so fast forward, you know, about a year, my anxiety is super high. And so I start going like, what's wrong with you, Kelsey? Like what, this isn't normal. So about two years before he died, I started to, to read, I started reading like Pema Chodron and, Mm. you know, when things fall apart and I started dabbling in meditation. But as you know, if you're an uptight, neurotic person, meditation, just frustrating because you're like, I'm not doing well. Um, and it takes a long time to understand that that's, that is well, but that's the point. Um, so I started reading a lot and I started just kind of sinking into like, what is this life about? What's the, what's the reason? And I still had this sense that something was off in my life or something was coming or something was about to happen. Um, but it, I also knew on a deep level that I couldn't stop it. Um, and so about six months before my husband died, I, um, I read the code of the extraordinary mind by Vishen Lakiani, and it just kind of rocked my husband and I's world. And we sent it to a bunch of our friends and one of our friends, um, is, is a well-known football player. And so he actually, through his connections, reached out to Vishen and, Long story short, um, his he couldn't go to an event in Jamaica, but my girlfriend, his wife, who's one of my best friends, and I were invited to go to one of Mind Valley's events called AFES, which I'm sure you know about, Ashley. But yeah. um, and so I I was like, this sounds so great. It sounded great like three months before, but 
about a month before I was like, I cannot go on this trip. This is just ridiculous. Like I don't Jamaica, there's murders there. And I was like texting all my friends, like, we're not going there. Like, this is too far. It's the middle of November. Like we have the holidays coming up. And so I told my husband, I had like a huge panic attack one night and I was like, listen, I can't go. And I remember he sat up in bed and was like, listen, you have to go. You've got to go to this event to find some peace and find some new ways to walk through this life because we'd been together 21 years. And he's like, you're just getting more and more neurotic and nervous and uptight and we're going to be fine here, but you have to go. And he never, ever told me what I had to do, but he was like, you need to go to this event. So long story short, I was like, gosh, it sounds like I need to do some personal growth and some self-inquiry. So I'm going to go. So on November 8th, um, he drove me to the airport. And I remember we were driving to LAX. We live really close, but we were holding hands and, and we got to the terminal and he's like, listen, like go, go become the best version of you. Go figure out what you want out of this life, how you can serve and just know that like, I adore you and I love you and I, I believe in you. And so, you know, we kissed and we said goodbye. And because I didn't, I didn't get, um, any type of phone plan for, um, the event, we ended up texting while I was there. And so I had two or three of the greatest days of my life simply because once I landed, I think spiritually some type of, um, some type of uh, sliding doors had closed. And once I got to that event, my life kind of changed. And so I had Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, amazing days, amazing speakers. Saturday morning, I listened to Wim Hof speak just about fearlessness and you know overcoming things. And I heard him tell the story of losing his wife when he had four young kids. And so then I, I, he was the last speaker on Saturday morning. And then I went and swam by myself in the water in Jamaica. And I remember feeling like I was changed, like something was different. I couldn't put my finger on it. And I walked back in and we were getting ready to go to the last event, which was like a boat ride. And my best friend called and she said, Hey, listen, I don't want you to freak out and do what you always do. But um, Nate took the kids to Sky Zone this morning. And I have two kids. They were 9 and 12 at the time. And she said he fell. And I don't want you to worry, but, um, you know, I just needed to let you know he is on his way to UCLA to the hospital. And I just said to her, like, he's dead. She's like, what? And I said, he's dead. And all of my friends that were there were like, Kelsey, you're overreacting, blah, blah, blah. And I said, listen, I need to get to the airport. I need to get home. And they're like, this is crazy. He probably was dehydrated. And so I just kind of at that point went into the zone. I, I knew way before anybody else knew. I mean, he and I were very connected. And um, so I got to, I got all my stuff packed up. I was in a bathing, dripping wet bathing suit, jean shorts and a crop top, you know, looking ridiculous. And um, we got into a cab and on the way there, my cell phone was like really bad reception, but I remember answering and my mom was like, this is the doctor, sweetie. And he wants to talk to you. And he just said, I'm so sorry, Mrs. Chittick. We tried everything, but your husband didn't make it. Um, so he died of a massive heart attack on 11-11 at 11 um, at Sky Zone, which is a trampoline park um, in front of my two kids, my 9 and 12-year-old uh, during toddler time um, at a trampoline park. Mm-hmm. And he just, he was gone. So... Fast forward to the last plane to the United States, getting um, finding a seat on it. The last plane, they'd actually pushed back and closed the door, which I didn't even know was possible that you could open it 
That's like the highest, the weirdest, highest security thing they do. But this guy from baggage claim, this amazing man somehow was like, this woman has to get back to her kids. And it was the last flight to the United States from Jamaica that day. So I, I got on that plane and I went into shock. I was throwing up, I was dry heaving and nobody was talking to me, which, um, you'll find sometimes when people are stressed, they don't, you know, nobody wants to kind of get involved. They didn't know. Maybe I was just like a freaking out scared flyer. But then I think when my experience with grief changed is when we, we were at about 20 minutes in the air and the seatbelt sign went off and then I was still crying. Still, nobody was talking to me. Um, and it's surreal, right? You don't believe it's like a dream. And just like in the movies, you're like, what? And then this beautiful, big African-American woman walked up behind me and she put her hand on my shoulder and then she put her hand on my forehead and she just said, um, baby girl, I don't know what you're going through or what you've experienced or what's waiting for you on the other side of this plane. But so many people are praying for you. Um, I'm praying for you. Your friends are praying for you and God is with you right now. So I want you to slow your breathing down and decide who you're going to be when you land. Wow. And that was it. I mean, I remember I put on my insight timer. I slowed my breathing down and I meditated pretty much the, you know, I think I don't even remember where I transferred, maybe Houston or Dallas. I can't remember the airplane people kind of helped me. But by the time I landed, um, was midnight and I went to tell my children that he was gone because they knew he was sick, but they moved my kids off the trampoline pretty quickly. Um, so they saw him do CPR, but I don't think they ever, they didn't really know. I don't think, but I think they knew something was serious. I was pretty clear that, um, I was going to have to do this, this thing I'd been dreading my whole life, literally dreading my whole life was losing somebody I loved, um, that I was going to have to figure out a way to do this for my kids and for me and for, to honor my husband, cause he was exceptional. And so that sort of started my, uh, my experience with grief and my desire to do it a bit differently than maybe traditionally was done and question our entire ways and beliefs in our society of walking through this thing. Oh gosh, what a story. I mean, a lot. It's so interesting when I'm listening to you, Kelsey, because the truth of the matter is that everybody listening to this conversation right now or your story, I think there there's a knowing that we all are going to get a phone call we don't like, Yep. you know, with news that rocks us. That's just life. And it's almost like we live just hoping that that's not the day. And I had a really, um, I've always been like pretty empathic and, um, a friend's dad passed away really unexpectedly one day. And I didn't know her dad, but I knew her and she was in so much pain and I was in agony, just experiencing her pain. Mm -hmm. And my mom said something to me. I never forgot. I love what you think of this. She said, you know, Ashley, like every every, one day, everybody's going to get a call like this. And today is not your day. Mm. And so she said, you don't have to feel this today because one day you will feel it. Oh, I love that. I love that. And I never forgot it because I used to think there was like compassion and letting your heart break with somebody else's. But I found that like, if everybody did that, we're just not going to survive, you know? And the friends that it's funny you say that because I learned how to be a friend by watching the friends that served me do it. And what I realized when people cried with me, I was annoyed when people said, Oh my God, what are you going to do? I was like, shoot, 
shoot yourself. Like I'm done. But when I had my high school girlfriends flying and they're like, bitch, you have been striving your whole life. You are strong. You are funny. You are going to make this. You were someone before this. You are going to be someone after this. Get up and pull it together. And honest to God, that's what I needed. I don't know if everybody needs that. But when somebody dies, you definitely don't need somebody to um, fall apart with you. You need them to hold you and hold your pain with very little emotion on their part. And it's uncomfortable, I think, for the person supporting the grieving person. But your mom was right. Like, don't go there before you need to, because the person you're supporting needs you to not be in the same space as them. Hey, U-Turners, this episode is sponsored in part by our friends over at Athletic Greens. And what I love the most about them is that their products are not only carbon neutral, but they taste amazing. I started taking Athletic Greens because I really wanted to get all the nutrients and vitamins possible in one swoop. And I just couldn't bring myself to drink all those green vegetable smoothies that taste like the grass. So I wanted something that actually tastes good and was perfect for me. And I've been on Athletic Greens for a few weeks now, and I am just loving it. It doesn't taste like it's super healthy. You know, it has kind of a mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to every morning. And with one scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. So this really special blend of ingredients is so supportive for your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, anti-aging, all the things. Right now, it is so time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition especially as we're in flu and cold season. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. I even throw mine in my smoothie. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash U-Turn. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash Y-O-U-T-U-R-N to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And they're giving one year of vitamin D that is so insane with your first order. I'm so excited for you to check it out. Now let's get back to this week's episode. Wow. It's so amazing to hear that from some... like. And so, I mean, I have to relate to you. Um, and I, and I have some questions about intuition as well, um, before oh, we get into how you process this, but you, you talk about intuition mm-hmm. and then you also talk about, um, like this ongoing nagging fear that I think a lot of us have that when you have a lot going, you have a lot to lose. Yeah. Um, how have you reconciled these thoughts? Like, do you think that when we go out into the world and we have a feeling something bad is going to happen, that's like an upper limit issue, like Gay Hendricks would say in his book, The Big Leap, where we are all just too happy and scared we're going to lose it? Or do you think there's an intuition in that where when we feel some the shoe is going to drop, you know, like we're actually right? Like, mm-hmm. how do you reconcile intuition versus fear? Yeah, that's a great question. Um I think the first thing, and I'd have to think about that for a while to really unpack it, but I believe my intuition that something was happening started me on an inner journey that served me extremely well when it hit. So mm-hmm. I, I believe that I was 
giving getting the signals and the feelings and the the reality that something was going to shift and if you choose to just sit in fear and it makes you smaller and more um move less and do less and be less it's not going to serve you but if you start to feel like something's shifting or something's coming or that something is to be aware of and you move to action then i think that becomes intuition and not fear so for me intuition is paying attention to what you're getting not freaking out but moving to a place where you are gathering tools and resources and people and information that that calms that down mm-hmm. um you know when I talk to my daughter about getting on an elevator and having a weird feeling in her stomach, I don't say you need to be afraid, but if your stomach says, Hey, this isn't right. Follow it. Just step off, move to action. I think fear freezes us and intuition guides us. That's a Mm -hmm. good one. Let's write Mm -hmm. that one down. Yeah. Intuition guides us. And I found that intuition and I talk about this sometimes on the show is that it's, it's absolute. It's a little more neutral. Like check this out, check that out. Good. This isn't good. Exactly. Um, what do you think keeps people from not following that feeling in their heart when they're in an elevator and something feels wrong? Like, because I, I have a um, friend, her name's Alyssa Nobriga. She's an amazing coach. And she talks about this idea of like doing what you feels right without buying into the fear. I just read this thing that said a sign of wisdom is not believing everything you think. And a sign of emotional intelligence is not internalizing everything that you feel. Okay, let me slow that one down. Wisdom is not believing everything. everything A sign of wisdom is not believing everything you think. So letting thoughts come through and watching them, but not hooking onto all of them, similar to meditation, but, but being aware of them. Like, that's interesting. That's interesting. Curious. And then a sign of emotional intelligence is not internalizing everything you feel. So just because you feel fear doesn't mean you need to act from a place of fear. It just, you're noticing it and then you're going to move to action around it, but you're not internalizing it. And actually Adam Grant put that up today, I think in regards to um, coronavirus. But I love that because I do believe, I mean, when if we take it back to death and grief, I do believe the soul begins to live month, leave months and years and weeks prior. I do believe something, um, I do believe our souls prepare just like a baby prepares to be born. I mean, it takes nine months to make a child. I, you know, I don't know. But I choose to believe that it takes a long time for a soul to get everything organized to then come down here and be a part of this human experience. I think if you're in touch with some of that, you are going to feel the pull of people when they're getting ready to go. Um, I feel like that's how it was for me with my husband. It was a deep knowing that something was coming and that I I was nervous because I knew it would be hard. Mm. But what's What's the big gift of grief and loss for me is that I now know on the other side of it truly is freedom, freedom. And it's okay. Like losing people, it's, it's okay. It doesn't mean it's not painful. It doesn't mean it's not scary, but you actually get to choose how you want to walk through that experience. And if you choose to make it, you know, something that opens you up, changes you, makes you more of who you were always meant to be, well, then it's a blessing. And the person who's gone, they're good. I am completely clear. My husband's in a great place doing whatever he wants to do and being, you know, and like cheering me on, like, you got this, you're up. Um, 
I just, every person I've talked to that has a near-death experience says like, it was the most beautiful thing. I almost went and then I blinked and I had to come back because I didn't want to leave this or that or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. I think my husband knew he had to go. Uh, He Mm -hmm. was a football player. He had, um, he won a Super Bowl. He had a great life. He impacted tons of people. And I think 42 was his full life. Um, You know, and I, that's hard to understand because we so value like long lives but if we kind of changed our views on that, like what is, what is a full life? Is it 89, but the last 20 you're in a nursing home? I don't think so. Yeah. Um, you know, I went through this. Um, my sister, she had a bilateral stroke and just died like out of nowhere a couple oh. years ago. I'm and sorry. thank you. I, it's just interesting listening to you because I think some part of me was at peace with it because it's almost like this knowing like where they are is where they're supposed to be. But I think a lot of us have, have a fear. Like I don't have a fear of me dying. Like I don't want it to happen, but I'm not necessarily living in fear of that. But I have a huge fear of like my dad dying or something like that. So what would be, I know you have these four steps to heal, but before we even get into that, like what would be the biggest message you could give somebody who like is driving in their car right now thinking, yeah, my biggest fear is losing my partner or my husband dying or my friend dying or my parents. Like what would be your number one message for them? God, um, that the best thing you can do is just live in the moment with them to start. Because if you know, you know, we all know that we're going to lose people. I always say we're, we're all one phone call from our knees, right? It's going to happen. Some of us, it happens younger. For you, it was your sister. For me, it was at 40. Um, for my kids, it was at 9 and 12. I hadn't really lost anybody, uh, you know, close to me other than my grandparents who died, you know, at the what we consider normal time. Um, I think an acceptance that if you cannot think of death as bad, it won't be so hard. Like when did dying become bad and being born became good? These are the big questions I don't have answers to, but why, when a baby is born, are we all thrilled and joyful? And, you know, you know, who's deeming this human experience better than dying? And who's, who's deeming that, you know, you without that person in body is, is, is worse than if they're in spirit. Like there's no possible way that when your dad dies, he's not going to be with you because he's made of energy and the soul is made of energy. So it can't be created or destroyed. It's, it's a physics. That's a law. So yeah. their bodies are what we lose. And what we crave and miss is the physical physicality of this human experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I can talk to Nate much more now than I ever could. He answers me the same way. Very short answers. He is very... Sometimes he comes to me when I ask. Sometimes he doesn't, just like when we were married. Um, he sends signs all the time if I'm paying attention. Um, I feel really guided by him wherever he is. I, I feel like on some level, I have this extra like person in a different spot that can see things that you can't hear. So I do feel guided and guarded by mm-hmm. by him and my grandparents and people like that. So... I think it would just be if you could just shift your idea that death is bad, just mm-hmm. possibly open up for the, and remember death was considered bad. And this is just my theory on religion, sometimes on organized religion, because it caused you to be afraid and to be afraid, then you would donate money 
and you would give to the church because you didn't know where you were going. And so you just wanted to like get some comfort around it. So death is bad. So let's all prepare for it. And let's make sure that we're going to go to a good place. Mm. Uh, You know, if we didn't think death was bad, I think that life would be very, very different. Well, and I also just, when I'm listening to you, it's like, there's so much freedom in making peace with loss, even when it's not death, like a breakup or losing a friend. It's like, yeah, your steps up. I think from what you were sharing before we started recording, it's like these apply to that. And so I'm curious. And and by the way, you kind of talk about this like channel that you have where you're like connected to your husband. And I have that with my sister. Um, When she was dying, I started to hear her voice in my head and I started knowing things that only my big brother would know, like Mm. conversations they had. And Mm. I knew she kept her journal from the eighties for no reason and found it and gave it to him because I heard her telling me that. And so do you have any suggestions for somebody listening to open up that channel if they're not scared of it or they're feeling really receptive to that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's funny. No one, no one balks at anybody praying to God and talking to God. Everyone's fine with that. Everyone's like, nope, I prayed to God. And no, everyone, we hold hands around dinner tables. We say, dear God, we talk and then we pray. And when we pray, we normally get information. For some reason, we've relegated this channel to, to God, to this higher mm-hmm. being. I, I would just like to open it up to people that are wherever that light is, wherever that love is, wherever that, ex- that experience is for you, where you can access somebody or something or some idea that you can't see you are most of us can do it i you know and atheists have their own view on it but i think it's a muscle i think that it's a muscle just like some people are great at sports and other people are good at you know art um i grew up in a really spiritual home that talked about this stuff a lot so i think i have a lot of reps in believing in things that i can't see and creating a reality that works for me and gives me more love and more peace so the first thing to do is is just believe it's possible. The second thing to do is play around with it. See if you hear that deep knowing in the back of your head or your heart that says, and, and from my experience, most dead people speak with very short sentences. You know, they're yeah. not, you're not having long conversations. It's a yes or a no or a not yet or wait or a lot of yeses and nos. And that's kind of your inner. And, and if we're all connected, then that's, that's, that's all you need. Mm-hmm. And so I think you just have to understand that talking to them is not like talking to them in this realm. It's mm-hmm. a deep knowing and it's a, it's an urge to go look at something for some reason out of the blue or go look in that weird place that you find the journal um, or that you ended up at a restaurant that then you ran into somebody else at the right time was had what you, that's them. That's, that's, that's the channel, but you, yeah. have, you have to honor it and be like, Oh, I would, that's interesting. So I think that's it. Yeah. There's such an ego. I think that but the belief that our five senses, do we have five or six? This is so embarrassing. I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God. We have a lot of them. We have some to know about. Falling apart over here. Um, but yeah, Kelsey, it's like, there's such an ego to thinking that our human senses are the limits of our scope and that there's nothing in the invisible. There's just, that's just so egoic to me to think that our body and our science and what we're limited to is all there is. Um, yeah. And, and, and if you're not with somebody, you still believe they're there. Like if I'm not with my kids, but they're at school, even though I can't see them, I'm, I, I fully believe they're still at school. We yeah. struggle with it in different realms because we just haven't accessed it enough. Yeah, totally. And so I know that somebody listening right now, if anybody tunes into themselves, you know, if I found in coaching, there's some sort of heartbreak somewhere, there's some sort of loss somewhere inside of them, whether it's as 
simple as being kicked out of a, a program for some reason, or as complex seemingly as a death. Um, and I know that it's unprocessed for a lot of people. So what would be the first step you have for somebody who is kind of being honest with themselves as they're listening to this conversation, thinking, you know what, it's time for me to accept and move on from this? Mm-hmm. What would be the first move? I think the first move is saying like, whatever you feel about it is right. And, and whatever you do, feel it. But if you're not feeling anything, you might want to take a look at why, because any type of heartbreak or loss there, there is, there are feelings. So if you're, if you're numb, that means you're just, you're not quite there yet, or you are choosing to numb or you're choosing to lock it away. Um, so I would explore, you know, what, what are the feelings that you have? And then I would walk towards them fully naked, no and I always say this because, you know, after Nate died, everyone's like, you need to take Xanax, you need to drink wine. And I was like, I don't want to miss this. I don't mm-hmm. want to miss any of this because I sure as hell don't want to walk this way again. Like mm-hmm. I'm in it now. So I think, um, you know, you have to do it like a practice. So when you're feeling that way, it's work. You've got to get that stuff out. I tell my kids when I made them do counseling, they're like, we don't want to talk about it. And I said, listen, if you fell and broke your, you know, and you fell and let's say you've got a huge cut on your arm and I went to clean it and you were like, no, mom, don't touch it. And I just said, okay, I don't want you to hurt. I know this burns. I'm not going to touch it. And then four years go by, you've got this huge bump, this scar, it's all infected. And you would say to me like, mom, why didn't you clean it? And mm-hmm. I would say, well, I just didn't want you to hurt. So mm-hmm. my job is, was to clean their wounds and to make them deal with it. And I think we have to do the same thing for us. It's very uncomfortable, but dive into it now because you, you're either going to do it now or later. It's a lot easier to do it when you're in it and you have people's support. Um, mm-hmm. So that would be the first step I would say is just accept that this is hell. This is, this is not fun. This is miserable, yeah. you know? Yeah. You know, it makes me think of my big brother. Cause, um, not only did my dad's first marriage, I had my big brother, and my big sister and my big brother, uh, he was laid off like five, six years ago. And it was the first time he wasn't working. So I think he kind mm-hmm. of had like workaholism Yep. and suddenly he grieved the death of his mom. Um, cause we share the same dad yep. and it, he was, a, he was a mess. Like I've never seen my brother like this. And it was like, dude, your mom died two decades ago. What's yeah. going on? Yeah. So how do you explain people who feel it like in that delayed way? Because I think that's so complicated for somebody to understand, like how is something coming on this strong from, from the past? Yeah. And I think that our generation is the first one that, and at least I felt this way for my kids. Cause I still go to grief workshops when I just want to no pun intended, want to die. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, we're doing this in such an antiquated way. Um, mm. so sad, right. Just so sad. Like stand up. If you've lost someone to cancer, it's like, Oh God, we're already miserable. Like what about yeah. doing, like ecstatic dance? Or what about like telling jokes about people or saying awful things about death that you would never tell anybody, you know, that yeah. like, I looked forward to like having sex with someone else. Like these are things you should say, you should say yeah. the truth. Um, so I think a lot of people that 20, 30 years ago, we just didn't talk about it, especially in the 50s. We didn't talk about it in the 60s and the 70s. Parents didn't, those that raised us didn't have the ability to talk about this stuff. So you were just told to put it away. Um, and so it either showed up in lower back pain, stomach aches, work, work, you know, workaholics, um, addiction. And, you know, whenever it comes up, it's time. And I, I don't think... I don't think there's anything weird about how your brother felt it because I'm certain that my children, although I did the best I could, they'll have another run 
as adults of dealing with the loss of their dad in front of them. I mean, that's traumatic. It's yeah. From a cellular level to loot, to have something, you know, I say death is the great magic trick here. One moment gone the next. And you're like, wait, what just happened? Yeah. And so my kids are going to have to revisit it, but that's their, that's their story. And, and your brother's story was he didn't have to deal with it until he was still enough that all that stuff could bubble up. Um, you know, I, we work, I clean, like when I get, when I start to feel those feelings, I don't like, I start wiping down countertops. Like how productive. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's a great addiction. <laughs> Come on over anytime. <laughs> yeah. So I think he's normal, but I think that, um, when it comes up, just don't run away. Definitely don't drink. Definitely don't take Xanax. Definitely don't get stoned. Don't do anything that blocks you from feeling it. You can do all that later. Just not when you're in it. Mm, okay. And you know, I think there's a lot of different like sneaky ways that we socially make it okay mm-hmm. to hide. And we don't even realize we're doing it like sex. That's like a common practice we'll do in relationships, but it can get addictive where it's like, you need that to not feel other things or, or buying, like sh- being a shopaholic or working like my brother, like workaholic. It's like, there are some socially ex- fitness, like workout addiction. It's like some socially acceptable ways that we tend to hide and not feel. Um, when can you, like, when would you determine when it's like, okay, no, this is the time to feel. Cause I'm, I'm guessing there's like a low numb vibration of loss that everybody is carrying with them if they haven't processed some, some of them. Yeah. I think if you find yourself in relationships hitting a roadblock or you mm-hmm. find yourself up against the same, um, the same problems or the same feedback from people that normally means that we're stuck somewhere. Um, uh- you know, if, and I've learned this so much as I've moved into a new relationship since losing my husband and I adore this man. And, you know, I, I hope to spend the next, you know, 40 years with him. But what's been really interesting is when he and Nate both bring up the same issues, I know they're mine. So if you ever find yourself, you know, hearing the same thing or running into the same problems, that's normally means that there's some work inside of you that you need to do. And a lot of times if you have loss or you have some, you know, trauma or anything that didn't go your way, that you haven't dealt with, you'll find yourself reacting in ways that served you during that crisis, but no longer serve you. And they need to be looked at. And so you'll just know because you'll be like, shoot, I've heard this before, or I've been here before. You don't want to keep saying in your life, I've already done this. <laughs> you don't. What's going on, U-Turn friends? It's Ashley here. Sorry for the quick interruption. I realize I've been doing this podcast for years and I almost never talk about my ghostwriting and publicity company called Cake Publishing. We have some of the best writers I know writing New York Times bestselling books, writing wording for people's websites, emails, and so much more, as well as publicists who are incredible at getting you on television, whether it's Good Morning America, Today's Show, or your local news. And we want to support you. We have been helping influencers, companies, and charities get their words and message out into the world. And we are so inspired by it. So if for some reason, you're a business owner or you work with a company that needs a ghostwriter for any reason, a speechwriter, or a publicist to get you out there into the world, head on over to cakepublishing.com. That's C-A-K-E publishing.com. Or you can shoot me an email at ashley at cakepublishing.com. All right, now let's get back to this week's guest. Um, Okay, so after feeling it all, what would be another move that someone could make if they are wanting to take action on releasing some grief that they've been carrying? I mean, this is my favorite, and I think I've been doing it since I was a kid. And um, I used to, my family used to hate me for it because I I'm, did stand up comedy for a long time. And I always like to tell a story 
in the best way. So my family's always like, you exaggerate, you lie. I'm like, I don't lie. I just make the numbers work for the story. You know, that's, uh-huh. I, don't, I don't consider that line. I'm sorry that I'm going to tell a funny story and someone else is going to tell a boring one. No, the numbers are not right, but they are serving me for the emotion I'm trying to get out of the story. So I say reframe or go insane. That's kind of my mantra with my children, with everything that happens is we all have so many things in life that we don't have a choice about. I did not get to choose that I lost my husband at 40 when I you know, met him at 19. I did not get to choose that he died in front of my kids. I did not get to choose that I was widowed. Um, these are things I could not control. But what I could control was the narrative around it. So I always say there's two stories. I could have said like, I lost the love of my life and my children were less fatherless and I was a widow at 40 and I didn't know how I would go on. I grew up with this man. And he was everything. And that's one version that I could have walked around telling people. Um, mm-hmm. But I quickly realized that left no power for me to become who I wanted to be. So now I, I'm i very clear on the story. You know, Nate was an amazing man and I'm honored to be his wife. His life was over at 42 and he left me two of the most amazing children in the world. And we are so grateful for our time with him. And we look forward to taking everything that he gave us and going on and living our life fully and we are open to more love and more joy because he taught us what that looked like. And, and, I'm, I, and I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't change a thing because here's the deal. You can't just go back to your life and pick out the bad stuff. I, I wouldn't have been, Nate died, but he was also who I married. So it can't be, I couldn't have, he was the person that died at 42, but that meant he was also the guy I married. That life has to be that life. I don't get to pick and choose what I want about it. Um, so reframing for me really says like, accept what happened and then spin it the way you want it to be told and felt because you get to decide what the, you get to decide what the, the narrative is. And then everybody else will follow you, but don't let someone else tell your story. Mm, I love this. And I find reframing to just be so amazing in life in general. It's, it's something that I'm always practicing. I remember when I first started my coaching business a decade ago, I was renting a space from a therapist in an office in Beverly Hills. And I remember he had like pictures of his family around the office. Uh-huh. And I felt weird because I was like renting that room for the day and my right. clients were coming in. <laughs> and so I remember moving the photos like that day being like, this is weird. It was just like little frames on the counter. And I forgot to move them back one day. And he's like, Hey, you, you moved the pictures of my family. And it felt so personal when he said that. And I remember being like, Oh my gosh, I'm like, so disrespectful. I have this whole thought. And then I just immediately, I was talking to a friend and she reframed it. She's like, no, you were just trying to get comfortable in a space you were working in. Of course. And I just find that that's always available, even with death and loss. So it's it's good to hear how you're getting grateful. At what point does it sound like denial? You know what I mean? Like some people are just trying to reframe something so they don't have to feel it. Like how do you navigate that? Because some people kind of walk around like a robot, you know? I think if you're too Pollyanna, like, oh my God, it's so great that he died. That was so awesome. Like he was awesome. Like you'll hear it in people's tone. I mean, listen, in between all the things I'm telling you about, I was broken. Mm -hmm. I was in a bathrobe from Ralph's for like nine months. Um, I was you know, I lost 20 pounds. I mean, my jeans had never fit so well. It was like the highlight of everything. Um, it was like there, there, I just, I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep. So in between all of it was really dark, dark moments. So I think what it, 
what I'm talking about is in the moments where you have some clarity and the wave of grief or the wave of loss isn't over you, those are the moments you choose to reframe and tell the story. Because, I mean, this is a whole nother podcast, but, and you know about this, but you know, the heart, you'll, you can't heal the heart except through time and, and you miss them. Your heart will miss them. But neurologically, your brain is searching for them for a very long time after they die. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens is, you know, your neurotransmitters only have a pathway that has them at the end of it, whoever you lost. So every time you walk down the hall, you see them and your brain goes, wait, wait, something's wrong. So it mm-hmm. takes two or three years before you have a neural pathway that doesn't have them at the end of it. You know, that mm-hmm. they're not at the Christmas, that they're not sitting at the dinner table because you actually have to create a reality and, and, and some pathways and new neurons that don't have them in it. And that's part of why it's so jarring. So in between the times when your heart is doing the, the hard work of emotionally saying goodbye, your brain is trying to rewire. Um, mm-hmm. That's where the reframing kind of helps you because you tell a new story and a new pathway can be built as opposed to the old pathway of, I can't believe this happened. I'm screwed, which is how you feel right away. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think you just have to be, if you're all happy when someone dies, you're psychotic. And yeah. if you're all sad, you're depressed. What you're looking for is to, to ebb and flow through mm-hmm. the emotions that are natural for losing someone. I love that you're saying this because I've seen all of those Instagram graphics that say like time doesn't heal, like feelings does, but you're totally right. It's both. You've got to feel it or else you're just going to keep it with you. And then you also have to allow time for like new neuropathies. The way I kind of have experienced it is like painting over something like where I where I used to go with my sister. It's like, I have to go paint over it and like go with other friends to those places to associate it differently. You know? Yeah, I remember someone telling me that I was like, I can't ever go back to Maine or Florida because we vacationed there for 20 years. And they're like, you have to go take those places back. Mm-hmm. You, have to go, you have to go put put your hands on that beach and and step in that cabin and and say like, I'm here still. I'm still alive. And you have to stand in complete conviction that that's all they want you to do. They do not. They already left you and died on you. I'm always like, Nate, you jerk. Like, I mean, I got, you know, sometimes anger helps. I was like, how could you leave me? And it kind of pushes you to say like, wait, I'm going to have a good life here. I'm going to do this because you would want me to, um, you know, you left me with two kids at 40, like how rude. Um, Mm. and so, yeah, that's the brain is the brain is a bigger part of this than we realize the heart, the heart time doesn't heal. Because if I, if I, I always say that like, if I open up my phone and look at pictures or videos, it's like cutting, like it's a choice to feel pain. And sometimes mm. I want to do it and I yeah. want to see them and I want to hear it. Huh? Some people, what do you think that is where some people like want to feel the pain? Like there's some sort of subconscious driver that it's like, I want to feel <laughs> it's all to remember that you loved them. Cause the mm. scariest thing, at least I see with my kids is that you forget. I mean, sometimes I'm like, I was married to him. Right. I mean, it's a dream. I don't know if you, have, you feel about your sister. So I yeah. think, the going back to the memories reminds you, and I quickly can get back into a really dark, sad place, but it almost reminds me that what we had was real and I did love them. But now I get to decide when to turn that faucet on and when to turn it off, as opposed to the first year where it comes involuntary. Like when the wave hits, you just hold on. Um, now I get to say, all right, I'm going to go in the ocean and I'm going to get knocked around a bit. I, I want that. Um, so, Well, so like for somebody right now who 
let's say there is really no actual loss happening. Like we're, we were talking about coronavirus as an example. It's yeah. like we're walking around the world just feeling this anxiety or the, these this control thing about death. Like, you know, I know with me, it's like this deep fear that my dad who's 76 is going to get hit with this virus and like sure. go. Sure. How do you make friends with that? Um, how do you make peace with that? What would be just like a start for somebody? Oh gosh. I think it's, I think it's a continued process. I think that, and I, I think we were going to talk about meditation, but for me, meditation gives you some space from your thoughts. And mm. it is the one thing that I do every day, even though I used to never believe I would have time. It's the one thing I don't have time not to do. And sometimes I just do five minutes, but most of the time I do 20 minutes. And it's the only thing if you're kind of a person who worries a bunch and has a lot of fears that are projected into the future or analyzing things from the past. It's the one thing that lets you step away and get a little space from thinking that we're supposed to understand this whole thing. And so, you know, getting quiet and being alone and watching just what your brain does to me allows you to go like, wait a second, everything's okay. And it will always be okay. And even mm. if it's not okay, it's still going to be okay. Mm. And you know, you're, you, you worry about losing your dad because you love your dad, not because you worry about losing him as much as you, you love him so much. The love causes the worry. You're not worried about him dying. You're worried about him not living, um, yeah. you know, cause you love having him. And I think just an acceptance that, you know, we're, we're all going to die and you're going to be okay when he goes. Yeah. You simply are. And you might even be better. That would be so healing to hear that. And I think everybody needs to remember that. And I think there's a lot of, it feels like there's a lot of judgment in society for people who want to make peace with death, you know, like, yeah, for me, when my sister died, it was like this, um, I don't really talk about it often, but it, it was almost like this comfort also, cause she also lived a really hard life. Yep. Yep. And this like weird comfort and this shame of admitting like, oh, like I'm not glad she's gone, but there's this part of me that is because her life was so hard and I'm glad that she doesn't have to have that one anymore. Oh yeah. It drives people crazy when I'm like, I'm so grateful Nate went when he did because he was sick I and mean, we didn't know, but, and my life is so much um, more full now because I don't have a husband that has, you know, he would have had brain damage and a heart disease and I mean, if you can call it selfish, but I am so grateful he's in the divine and I'm here having an experience without having to caretake and that he's out of pain. He must've been in terrible pain. So, you know, even when death is sudden and out of the blue, or if it happens to a child, like you just have to know that there's a greater force at, at work that we just don't understand the whole thing. I mean, we just don't get it. So for us to be so presumptuous to believe that longer is better or more time is better, or, oh my God, they didn't get in, They didn't get to do that, that, and that. We don't know if they ever were even going to. We tell these stories about their lives and what they missed and what, what they don't get to do. We don't, we actually don't know if any of that would be true. We just don't. So mm -hmm. letting go of the dream that you have it all figured out and just, you know, accept that it's going to hurt, but it, it was worth it. You know, like loving your dad was worth whatever comes. Yeah, you're so right. This is so amazing. And so you, you talk about for everybody, like feeling it all, not numbing it out, um, reframing it, being, you know, whether that's gratitude or just looking at it through a different lens, realizing that they're all good. Like they yep. are in a place wherever they are. Yep. Um, and everybody has different beliefs about where they are, but you can at least trust that like they're not feeling any of this pain right now, I'm no, guessing. This is human. And then, yeah. 
human. And then you talk about meditation and I would love to hear just a little bit about like, why is it such a powerful vehicle for you? Um, and why should people start implementing this into their lives? Yeah. I, I think if you are fear-based or have thoughts or you loop all the things that those of us that are afraid of death or bad things happening, and a lot of people that just, we walk around trying to control everything. Meditation is the is for centuries and centuries has proven to give you clarity and perspective and peace. And if people have been doing it for thousands of years and it's free and I can do it anywhere, it just would be a mistake for all of us not to do more of it, to not have our kids do it in school. It's just changed the way I watch how I feel when emotions come up or I get, when I get scared or if I made a mistake, I feel really hot. Like I send an email I wasn't supposed to, or I add someone on a text string that shouldn't have been there. Um, I feel this flush of heat and my heart starts to race. And with meditation, I can be like, I can sit down and be like, watch that, watch that, look at that, look at what's happening just from a thought, just from a, you don't even know what's going to happen yet. So meditation has just given me space from myself to look and experience things in a way that gives me peace because it just slows everything down. And I, I just think that it's, it's something everybody can do. There's no socioeconomic barriers to it. Um, it's like, it's like water and air. It's, it's, it's your one moment to be, just be. And mm -hmm. just when you're, when you're taking a breath, all really is well in that breath. Like it truly is. Even if the whole world's falling around, apart around you, um, you're, you just took a breath. So you're alive. You're okay. Um, mm -hmm. that, that gives me great peace. Yeah. Just being right back in the moment. Um, and just becoming an observer, I think through the meditation, like watching yourself and choosing versus being in it. Um, okay. And then you also talked about just this idea as like the fourth step for you note takers who are listening to this. You talked about, um, uh, changing the way you look at death. And I know that most of our conversation has kind of been about this, but what do you mean by that? Um, when, you just change the way you look at death. Is it questioning the way society's looking at it as you were saying, like, why does the end have to be a bad thing? Yeah. Like I have so many, I mean, I, yeah. Why, why is birth good, death bad? I mean, just start asking questions. Like why, why do we put people in a box underground? Like that doesn't sound fun. That makes it kind of seem scary. Um, you know, Nate, I remember my kids really struggled with him being cremated because they've never heard of it or talked about it or understood it. And then as we kind of, that's a whole nother story, but you know, they were so nervous and they were so angry and they were like, don't burn him. And I was like, I don't want to burn him. But we really talked about this stuff. And I finally, you know, I, I would research things and cremation is really a beautiful thing. It's like ashes to ashes. Like he was no longer there. That body was not serving him. And I did some healing journeys and some things. And I saw very clearly from, and this is just my perspective that these bodies are just things we walk around in. They have nothing to do with us. And if we all, you know, I'm talking to you right now and I don't see you. You could be a spirit for all I know. Um, I'm not touching you. They're, like we are made of what's inside of us, not this thing we walk around with. And so if we just, you know, if we kind of changed just the way we looked at it, if we talked to kids more about death, I and mean, my kids had never, I had never been to a memorial service until my husband's. I mean, we just don't do death very well in this culture. We, we hide you away in a coffin or we have this like very solemn ceremony in a church or we send you away and then you come back as ashes. It's just very creepy. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know. I just, I wish that, you know, we did it uh, more beautifully. I wish when someone died, we cried, but we also 
had celebrations around it. And even if they died in horrible ways or before we want to like celebrate that they're going back somewhere and they gave it their all, but that was it for them. And, you know, whatever you want to choose to believe that gives you peace, um, you know, you hold on to that and you keep going and say like, one day I'll be the one going and I'll see them again because I'm certain we don't all go to separate places. You know, I'm, I highly doubt that one person goes to a Hilton, the other one goes to a Marriott. Like, no, we're all going to be going wherever that soul goes. So you will be reunited on some level um, or you won't, but whatever it is, it's okay. Cause you don't need to worry about it. So no. I don't know. I would love I would love to change everything about death culture. I would love for people to stop bringing casseroles. No one eats casseroles except when someone dies. So like, why? Oh my God, you're so right. Disgusting. Like I don't need to clean a pan that's like got cream of mushroom soup in it. I'm already depressed. Um, You know, so there's just a ton of things I would do differently. Like bring Chick-fil-A. Like, I don't know, do things that make me happy. Um, Dance more, laugh more, tell stories more, you know. Um, yeah, totally. So that's it. That's kind of my view. I don't know how to do it. I do think death, we, that there are greater, there are big forces that are motivated to us being afraid of death. And I do think that if we loosened our grip on that, our lives would become just bigger and more exceptional. Let's all agree on something and let's move forward. That's kind of how I feel about death. Like let's all agree it's going to happen. Let's all agree that we'll do our best to avoid it. Um, because we all have a deep desire to live and have our loved ones live, but then whatever is will be, and we'll be okay. Thank you so much, Kelsey. What a comforting interview this has been for me, myself, and probably everybody else. Good. Um, Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. What an amazing story and resilience. And um, I just so relate and understand some level of what you're sharing through my life and where can everybody continue to learn from you best? Um, so I co-host with one of my best friends, keep on the podcast. And it's just about basically, you know, overcoming some of life's biggest challenges and and coming out, you know, better for it, blessing it, um, as Mm -hmm. opposed to being afraid of it. I'm working on a book. I think the working title right now is Life Blows, Grow, <laughs> Life Blows, Grab a Balloon. Um, mm-hmm. That hopefully will be coming out soon, well, in the next six months or so. And um, that's it right now. I'm raising my kids. You can find me in my house doing laundry. And mm-hmm. um, just, you know, I do a lot of speaking about this. So, you know, that's it. That's all I got. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ashley. Great to talk to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the U-Turn podcast. And thank you again so much for our sponsors. We are here because of you and to our listeners. Thank you for checking out our sponsors. We always pick people and brands that we trust and we believe in. And just for listening to the show, writing your reviews on the Apple app, and just being willing to make your own U-Turns. We'll see you next week. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests. 
like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.